House of Gucci is like a walk across the cinematic equivalent of Canal Street, where shady merchants sell ersatz designer merchandise. Instead of a purse whose clasp falls off, the movie amounts to a dull, cheap knockoff of Martin Scorsese. Great blurb that Chris Cody dropped in there from Kyle Smith of National Review. He's talking about the new film House of Gucci, one of the three new films we're reviewing this week here on Cinephile. Not only House of Gucci, but also The Power of the Dog, which is a big Oscar contender that's on Netflix, and Becoming the Ricardos, another big Oscar contender, Nicole Kidman, Javier Bardem. I got a sneak peek at that one. I got a link sent to me. It's going to be, I believe, in theaters this Friday, and then a few weeks after that, it'll be available on Amazon Prime. Good to have you with us here on Cinephile. That is the new, as far as the old, bit of a cheat, because I didn't really get a chance to watch any old movies, so... Uh, the great Rick Passmore, who you heard last week at episode 200, uh, heard me and Rosillo talking about Fargo and immediately bought and sent me the copy of the book called The Lock Can Happen in the Middle of Nowhere. That's a new book about the making of Fargo. So, yep, another author, another weird here cinephile. Not interviewing him. Maybe we'll get the interview at some point, but I, I read the book <laughs> and it was a great, great read. So uh, that's a classic, obviously. Fargo, 25th anniversary. And as far as the wild card, a couple of filmmakers from the new documentary called Citizen Ash. You don't just have to be a fan of tennis to love it. It's about Arthur Ash, the actor and civil rights pioneer, all that he did. So it's excellent, excellent stuff. And we'll talk to both of those filmmakers. Chris, good show today. I love the idea of a, a movie called The Power of the Dog being like a heavy hitter in the Oscar. It's just like a ridiculous name for a movie, yeah. but I'm into it. Yeah, I was wondering that too. As I'm watching the film, I go, okay, is this going to be one of these like, you know, figurative mentions? Is there actually a literal mention? But later on, there is a point where they're looking at a mountain and he goes, it's kind of like a dog. And I don't want to spoil it, but there's another mention of the power of the dog. So if you're <laughs> okay. into canines, old yeller, let's get after it. Um, first and foremost, though, thanks to everybody for your support of Cinephile. I still can't believe we get to 200 episodes. Uh, you know, Chris and I know there's people who are falsely humble in our business, but I'm being genuine. I, I never thought we'd get to 200 episodes. Stanzik and I started this on a whim. It was just for fun. To be perfectly blunt, I kept getting passed over for radio shows at ESPN. Um, you know, uh, Canal got the spot with Rosillo. Mike and Mike went to Trey Wingo. So I think I just said to Dan, like, I, I, I just keep filling in all the time. Like, I might as well just do a podcast. <laughs> and he was like, yeah. And he was like, oh, yeah, I do, like, movies, baseball, Canada, which later became a segment on the Levitard show. And I go, well, I don't think anyone <laughs> wants to hear my tennis takes. Why don't we just do movies? And Pete Genesini was like, and we know this, Chris, in the business. If you do it for free, mm -hmm. nobody cares. I was like, I just, need to, <laughs> I just need to use your facilities, and we'll use the ESPN name. Is that cool? I'm like, great. So all of a sudden, we put it out there. And the first episode, I remember, wasn't very good. I was talking even faster than I am right now because we are just trying to speed <laughs> through it. And Pete afterwards was like, because it was kind of like a pilot, right? And, but Stanzik just put it out there. I go, wait, it's like a pilot. He's like, no, I already put it out there. It's, it's, it's in the universe. I'm like, okay. And Pete was like, yeah, it's good. He goes, you talked a little fast. He goes, I would try to incorporate Dan more. And we went from there. But when Chris was putting together that outstanding montage, great, great job by Chris. That, that is not easy to go through hundreds of interviews. I, I had said to you, okay, I know that Barry Jenkins is good. You'll get the call from the Oscars, his reaction. I forgot that I called it my Al Michaels moment, but I'm glad Barry had a good laugh out of it. The, the great clip you pulled from Billy Bob Thornton, I forgot about that. Oh. He was talking about his loneliness and the fact he was very estranged and outsider. But I love the way you just, you know, boom, here's Omar Epps. Boom, here's Robert Tinder. Like, that, that was awesome. I mean, the, the heavy, like, when I was going through the history of Cinephile, I mean, I knew that you had some good guests but I was just like, we have to highlight. I mean, not that we've had any recently. Like, we're, we're working on it, by the way. Like, I, I saw some tweets out there. Hey, we're working on it. Okay. But I'm just saying, like, you've had some names. So I was like, we got to highlight this. If we're celebrating 200. You got to highlight the names. How long did that take for you to put together? Like, that was, for people who are not in the business, that takes a long time to put together that 12 minutes. Yeah, that, that took a, a good few hours, few hours, I'd say, for sure. Just going through, downloading sound and yeah. cutting little clips from it. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, but it was worth, I enjoyed doing it because it was like, I kept getting better names. I was like, I think I have enough. And then it's like, oh, Robert De Niro, Omar Epps. It's like, they just, the names just kept coming. Yeah, Matthew McConaughey. But there's there lots of good yeah. stuff there. And thanks, of course, to all the former collaborators of Cinephile. Great messages. My brother was laughing about Ben Lyons' message, although he's wrong. I did not have a sinus infection. It was a throat issue. It was, it was an <laughs> abscess in my throat. I literally could not swallow, which is why I went to emergency care in Utah. <laughs> site of the Sundance Film Festival. And I, I, a big shocker here. I, I texted Dan, of course, Stan's like, I said, thanks for the message. He goes, yeah, I guess, a little surprised Cody edited some of my message. I go, what? I go, he edited it? He goes, yeah, I go, send me the whole thing. So you edited some of the stuff where he was thanking Pete Genesee. Well, he kind yeah, I mean, he started doing the thing where it's like, let me start thanking everybody. And you had already kind of done that. And I felt like it ended on almost like a little bit of a poignant part where he was like, cinephile forever. I thought that was the good ending. And then after that, he started just thanking, it was like, it turned into an Oscar speech. And I was just like, this is... 
Like I, I just felt it, 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 it. I don't know. I just, I know. I, I thought maybe Stanzik being a producer was going to be like, geez, Cody edited me. But it's like I just, I was trying to end on like a little bit of poignant and and and. I, you know. I thought his message was fabulous, and this is a far forever. I totally get what you're getting at. I was just amused when I thanked Amelia. It's like, hmm, a little surprised Cody edited me. I'm like, what did you? I'm like, what you? I mean, first of all, you sent me like a two minute clip. All right, let's go. Let's tighten up a little, Stanzik. I'm kidding. That's why I put it at the end. I thought Stanzik oh, had the, had the, the humor. Yes. He had the bit, and then he brought it, closed it at. Yeah, and that's why I just thought the thank yous were a little redundant. That's why I was like, let's just, you know, let's tight. You know, remember, remember knocked up? Tight. Let's just tight. I love that we're critiquing the thank you message of my former producer right now. <laughs> this, is, this is very inside baseball, but I like that yes. we're doing this right now. That's a fun thing to do. But yeah, the guests have been amazing. All those messages were awesome. And uh, thanks again for everybody for your support. Instead of file to 200 more, we hope, as they say. I want to read this one blurb here because people always ask me, you know, why, why do you even go to the movies? Like, why don't you just watch it when it's streaming? And by the way, uh, this is insane. I spent this much money. My wife was dying to watch House of Gucci. It's the one movie she really wanted to see. As listeners of the podcast know, I normally check out a Monday matinee by myself, or I go take the kids on the weekend for the kids' movies. So this time, I'm like, i got to get a sitter. $15 an hour, four hours for the sitter, because the movie is two hours Oof. and 40 minutes. And yeah. 10 minute drive, et cetera. So that's $60. House of Gucci at the local theater here in Jersey, only playing in the Dolby Theater, which is the select theater, Chris. You want to guess how much the yeah. tickets are for that theater? Twenty-four dollars. Oh, okay. I was gonna I, guess. I, I, I was gonna say twenty, I, guessing ridiculously I, high. I'm hoping to get a Gucci bag when I walk out of there, but no. So, a hundred and eight dollars to go watch House of Gucci. So please, Oof. broadcast film critics, start sending me some screeners, okay? Let's. But it makes sense because Gucci's so overpriced. It just makes sense that that experience would cost a lot of money. Yeah, actually, you know what? That makes sense. And it was. And the funny thing, my wife actually, I'll have some thoughts on it because I got I talked to my. My wife saw this movie. She was like your wife, very into seeing it. She saw it with her sister. So I, I, I didn't see it, but I have some thoughts from her. Okay, good. But when people ask you why bother seeing a movie in the theater, this is actually a very highbrow answer. This is from The Hollywood Reporter, article by Tyler Coates. And he says that it's not just a big screen that's so vital. The social nature of seeing a film is just as important. According to a 2019 study conducted by University College of London's Department of Experimental Psychology and View Entertainment, seeing a film has a positive impact on both brain function and social connection. The most emotional moment in a film might tug at our heartstrings, but the person sitting next to you is, at the same time, experiencing the same feelings, resulting in a communal physiological response. That's absolutely true when I saw Belfast, because I'm choked up at the end, and I felt a woman, like, two, two you know, chairs down. She's, like, weeping, and, mo and so it does, it does kind of wrap you up. Seeing a film also has an effect on focus. A two to three hour break from checking emails or doom scrolling Twitter always should be welcome as a respite from a mental health perspective in turning one's attention to a large screen rather one that fits in a pocket. According to that UCL study, the immersive experience of seeing a film alongside others offers a chance to concentrate and practice mindfulness. Pretty good, right? That's the benefit. That's the benefit for me. The the first part about con like you're not doing that much connecting, like looking at someone, like oh, we had a moment. But I feel like the the just getting away from like at home when I'm watching a movie, even if I'm into it, I'm gonna look at my phone a couple times. If I'm in a movie theater, maybe once. Like it definitely is a lot better in a movie theater in terms of just like getting de disconnecting and just getting into the movie. Yeah, I, I, I always I always at home I'm always finding myself rewinding stuff because it's like oh I just I zoned out for a second. Right. Let me rewind. Right, your daughter comes in. You're distracted for a second. I got to make a phone yeah. call. Oh, Levitard's on the, oh, I got to text him back now. Yeah. There's, so that, that aspect of it is important. So having said that, I'm giving House of Gucci a real honest chance. I'm paying 108 bucks. I'm totally locked in. <laughs> Uh, but unfortunately, it's a bit of a disappointment. I, I went into high expectations. This film is all style, not enough substance. First and foremost, you've got like six different actors, all very talented. They all have six different accents. And Lady Gaga is <laughs> taking heat for her accent. And she said, listen, I went, my ancestry is Italian. I went and checked this part of northern Italy. This is a specific accent. Okay, fine. Jeremy Irons is British. He still sounds British. He's, he's like 80% he's like British with a dash of Italian. I'm like, this guy definitely doesn't sound Italian. My man Pacino. And by the way, he's my favorite actor. I kept thinking at one point, I'm like, how? How many more times will I get to see my favorite actor in a new movie on a big screen? So I'm like, yeah, the guy's 80 years old. It is cool getting to old. see an Al Pacino. Getting old, Ed, man. Yeah. But Pacino kind of sounds like Al. Like he has, a, he has a slight Italian accent, but he's a little bit of a Bronx accent. Like it's kind of like Al. Uh, and then you've got Jared Leto, who's the best part of the film. He's doing with the Italian pizza parlor accent. It's like, hey, what do you want from me? Like that. And he's fabulous. <laughs> like it's, I don't think it's an accurate accent, but he's easily the most entertaining part of the movie. So they're not all on the same page. But the movie is about the Gucci's, and I did not know much about this actual story. I'm assuming it's like, you know, rise and fall of a criminal empire. Uh, in this case, are they criminals or are they just fashionistas? It depends on your perspective. But we do know this. Patrizia Reggiani 
is a criminal. That's Lady Gaga. She's an outsider from humble beginnings who marries into the Gucci family. Her unbridled ambition begins to unravel their legacy and triggers a reckless spiral of betrayal, decadence, revenge, and ultimately murder. It's written by Becky Johnson, <laughs> Roberto Bentevenia, and it's directed by Ridley Scott. Good year for Ridley Scott. He did The Last Duel, which I really enjoyed, and he also makes this film, which I did not enjoy as much. It is based on the book by Sarah Gay Forden, but when you're watching a movie like this, Chris, you have to ask yourself, what is the point of this movie? So Lady Gaga's infiltrating these rich people, and I see the decadence and the spiritual decay and money being thrown around, and, and it looks beautiful. Production design, costumes, etc. But what is the point of this? I know where this is going. I know the real story, that she uh, you know, hired a gunman to kill her husband, played by Adam Driver, who also has another accent. I love Adam Driver, but he's also... Uh, he gives a good performance. I thought he was a little more grounded than the other ones. But what exactly is the point of the film? And I thought the movie should have been more campy. It should have been more over the top, more having fun with the fact these guys are just enjoying life and just throwing caution to the wind and being so decadent. Instead, I thought the film tried to have it both ways, which is to show the style, but also have some substance and have some sympathy for these characters. But it should be more like Succession. These are not sympathetic characters. They're a bunch of rich fools. And that's why Leto's the best part of the movie. He's basically playing Fredo. Like, if this movie's The Godfather, he is Fredo. He is the loser, he's the idiot, and he's unrecognizable. I believe he's wearing a fat suit. I wish he'd actually gotten fat for the role, but apparently wearing a fat suit. Shaved head. Like, like when people watch me, they go, is that Jared Leto? I'm like, yeah, he's amazing. Jared Leto is such a strange guy, Chris. When he made Suicide Squad, and he was not well-received as Joker. I actually liked his performance as Joker. He had the green hair and all the purple and all the rest of it. But on, on the set, he was in character. Like, he's a method actor. He sent a used condom to a couple members of the cast. They're like, oh, my God. It like, gets from Jared. He's like, Just to, like... Like, be an asshole yeah, like the Joker would? The Joker. He's like, this exactly. is something... I do pranks. I'm like, no, this, this did not go well. But he's also a really talented actor. I believe he won an Academy Award, Dallas Buyers Club. If not, he was definitely nominated for the great Matthew McConaughey movie. So this guy's a talented actor. I could tell he totally dove into the movie. I wish more of the actors were like Leto because it's a tragic comic performance. It's a tragic character in that he is the fool. He is the moron. And yet there's a sadness to it. There's a scene where Pacino absolutely erupts on him and you feel for this guy. If only the rest of the movie had been as strong as Jared Leto, I would have liked it more. You mentioned with Adam Driver, grounded, as a, his character was grounded. What I don't know what you mean by that. So he's kind of playing the role. Like the other ones are like a little bit more excessive, a little bit more over the top, right? Not only in terms of accents, but also their flourish. More realistic? Exactly. So his is more a little more realistic. He's a little bit more actually playing a guy who is from the Gucci's, who's very strung together, a little bit more internal, whereas the rest of the performance is a little more external. So okay. that's not to say you can't have different acting styles in a movie, but it just feels like a bit of a mishmash. And ultimately, I don't really know what the point of the movie is. I don't know really what the lesson is. I wish it had been more campy. I'll give it two maple beliefs. Again, I, I liked it for the performances, particularly Leto. Lady Gaga might get an Oscar nomination. Of course, it's great to see Al on the big screen, but ultimately, I was disappointed. What did your wife my, think of House of Gucci? The first thing my, my, my wife went mentioned was something I was like, oh, Adnan's definitely going to bring this up, was a sex scene between oh. Adam Driver and Lady Gaga. <laughs> and she said the most, and she brought up such a good point. She's like, they did the move where they like sweep everything off of it, because apparently they were doing it on some sort of table yes. or desk. Oh, yeah. And they do this thing where they like clear the whole table off. And it's just so inefficient. Like afterwards, there's such this mess you have to pick up. Like in real life, if you're ever going to actually have sex on a desk, you just clear the area that you need. There's no need to make a mess that's unnecessary. So my that was my wife's big takeaway was that there was a she she like you. She was like, it was fine. She didn't like like love the movie, but she brought up that sex scene. I'm like, oh, Adnan's definitely going to bring this up. And Lady Gaga's moaning and writhing. Hey. I think it's also a little unrealistic, okay? I'm sure Driver's not <laughs> really? that good in bed. Come on. Not grounded? Yeah, not, that was not a grounded not scene grounded. for her? Oh, 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 come on. Enough with the excessive moaning. Uh, House of Gucci <laughs> from Clarice Lowry. A titillating, ridiculous, utterly engrossing soap opera. Okay, I disagree. Deborah Ross, The Spectator. In short, this isn't a bad film, and it's probably worth seeing for Lady Gaga alone, but also, it's not a great one. And Armand White <laughs> of National Review, ultra hack Ridley Scott, redefines banality in House of Gucci. Wow. Hornball reality drama like just just scorching review wow oof I'll just, give it, I'll just give it two maple leaves and move on uh, we'll get to I mean he kind of he, I mean, he kind of agreed with you but he just said it meaner <laughs> exactly this guy had like a real axe to grind like okay you had a bad day here no problem to this gentleman here uh, next up is Power of the Dog and this is a film, as I said, getting a lot of Oscar buzz right now. It's directed by Jane Campion. You know her because she directed The Piano, which is a film which is very well received way back in 1993. Holly Hunter won an Academy Award playing Ada, a mute. You got Harvey Keitel, amazing as Bane's nude scene, full frontal. Anna Paquin, also Academy Award nominated. She was like nine years old in The Piano when it came out. So now she's back with Power of the Dog. Charismatic rancher Phil Burbank inspires fear and awe in those around him. When his brother brings home a new wife and her son, Phil torments them until he finds himself exposed to the possibility of love. 
Yeah, it's a little bit of an eccentric western. There's no question about it. It's rustic. It's atmospheric. I love the sun-dappled mountains. And the real star of the film is obviously Benedict Cumberbatch. He plays Benedict. He plays the main character, I should say. Phil Burbank. He's dark. He's brooding. He's conflicted. He's also just a world-class jerk. At one point, he's trying to get the horse to listen to him. He slaps the horse. Every time you watch a movie, and at the end, it says, no animals were harmed in the making of this film. Well, he yeah. slaps this horse. He goes and says, you fat-faced bitch whore, when he slaps the whore. Later on, there's a scene where a bunch of the cowboys are they're bathing. And one of the best jokes of the movie is his brother, played by Jesse Plemons, who I love because he's like a to be Philip Seymour Hoffman. Like, he's not as good an actor, but he's he's wide. He's got a round face, that cherubic look to him. He's telling his brother, Benedict, hey, my wife doesn't want you to come over because, you know, you're unclean. Like, you don't bathe. And he's like, what? He's like, oh, because I'm filthy. She doesn't want me in the house. I'm like, yeah, you smell. You're disgusting. Take a bath. So later on, there's a scene of him in the bath. Sorry, not in the bath. He's actually like in a lake somewhere. And then afterwards, he's shirtless fondling himself with a cowboy. I'm like, what is going on here? Like, this, this guy's definitely got some demons. But the rest of the cast is also excellent. Like, Benedict clearly must have watched The Roby Blood. He's like, okay, I'm going to be like Daniel Day-Lewis in that movie. Because he's just mean and, and hard-boiled. Plemons, as I said, is a nice guy brother. And then you have Kirsten Dunst. So that's the wife of Jesse Plemons. She's got those strong incisors, you know, weathered, emotionally unstable. And she's hitting the sauce pretty hard. Because she tells, okay, who is this guy? It's kind of like, Chris, one of these movies from like the 90s. Like, you know, Unlawful Entry. One of these thrillers, you're like, okay, mm-hmm. Benedict's coming in. He's moving in. Like, why are you mad at the brother's wife? This guy just doesn't like his sister-in-law. And there's one particularly menacing scene in which he's whistling. I mean, it, it, it's such a good scene. It's foreboding and, and ominous and suspenseful. He's almost like Mitchum in Night of the Hunter. It's really well done. Anyways, she brings in her teenage son, who's this gawky kid who they all call effeminate. And throw a couple mm-hmm. case slurs at him. I mean, this is 1925. But for some reason, Benedict Cumberbatch takes a liking to this kid. And you're like, okay, is he, is he going to hurt this child? Is he actually genuine? And the story goes from there. I will not say anything further except to say I really like this film. I can tell why it's being universally praised. I did find the ending a bit of a letdown. When you've got this suspense building, right? Okay, someone's being chased or hunted meaning Kirsten Dunst's character and the kid. And Benedict's coming in. He's the bad guy. He's gonna, and all of a sudden, the ending, and I'm going to spoil it, but there's no real cathartic ending. Like, I'm still waiting for that big moment, and I am still waiting for that moment. So I'm going to give it three minute beliefs. I liked it a lot, but I did not love it. I'm going to go ahead on the record and say that any movie that does harm animals, they'll just leave it out at the end. They're not going to say no animals were harmed. They're just going to not, they won't say animals were harmed. They're just going to leave that part out and they won't even address it. Also, can you name a more pretentious name in acting? Benedict Cumberbatch. I'm not saying he's pretentious, even though he probably is. There's that, like, you can't, if I'm all in with that name, you're not beating me with any hand. Six syllables. Like, (laughs) six syllables in your name. Like, when you first went... To a, a casting agent or a, a casting director, acting school. That can't be his real name. Hang on a second. That has um, to be his stage name. Fam- Benedict Cumberbatch. Okay, no, seriously, why is that? What's your real name? Ben Ben Cumber? Like, what, just, your name is actually Ben Cumber, Ben Dover, whatever it is. Okay, we're going to call you Benedict. Like, listen, if that's your formal name, but then in interviews, you guys say, call me Ben, right? Call me Benny. So go to the guys and be oh, Dan. Man. Just call me Dan. Okay. His name is Benedict Timothy Carlton Cumberbatch CBE. <laughs> Why does it just be CB4? The great Chris Rock comedy. We'll call him CB4 from now on. That is Benedict Cumberbatch. He's definitely Aww. pretentious. I, mean, I think he's a nice enough guy, although Google this story as I'm saying it, so I don't have uh, any sort of slander towards him. I believe he was excellent in a film called The Imitation Game, for which I believe he was Academy Award nominated. Very, very good movie about uh, Alan Turing, and it took place during World War II. I believe in an interview in which talking about actors of color, because this is around Oscar So White, he referred to it as there should be more colored actors. And every actor's like, oh, dude, that's a good term for the 1950s. Like, we don't do that anymore. CBE means Commander of the Order of the British Empire. So apparently he's been awarded something okay, so even has, more. This guy has the to most. Pre- like, wow, his name, his, I could not think that his name could get more pretentious if we looked up the full version of it, and it did. If there was a blurb for him, it would say Benedict Cumberbatch, as pretentious as you think he is. <laughs> exactly who this guy is. By the way, I should mention the directing by Jane Campion. It's very rare to have female directors nominated by the Academy. There's only been seven women in 93 years uh, recognized for Best Director. Chloe Jaw, of course, won last year for Best Directing. And, you know, we've had other moments in the past. How dare you not be able to name all seven of them off the top of your head? I was going to say, well, the big one that won, of course, was Catherine Bigelow for The Hurt Locker. As now I get very, very nervous, and Chris is scaring me. I'm 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 messing with you. It's you. I mean, Champion was nominated for the piano. There's three. (laughs) 
<laughs> you're good, man. I'm telling you, I'm impressed that you, like I don't know anybody's name, yeah. so you're 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 great. Seven women in 93 years have been nominated. I guarantee she could get nominated. The, the shot framing is exquisite, particularly in those final moments. It's very artfully directed. As I mentioned, the piano. She also did a film called In the Cut with Meg Ryan. It wasn't particularly well uh, received. Erotic thriller it was was kind of a bit of a mismatch. But yeah, Jane Campion's going to get nominated. Power of the Dog. And as people always want to know, I don't want to go to the movies, right? Well, don't worry. It's available on Netflix. You're googling right now the seven women who've been nominated. I'm trying to. Yeah, 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 yeah. Drop right, <laughs> some more on me. I got your big little uh, Chloe Zhao and Jane Campion. Those three for sure. All right, we have in '76 Lena. Lena uh, Wirkmuller. Uh, yep. Yeah, yeah. 1993 for Jane a Campion. movie that involves. Okay, you got her. Yeah. And that uh, in 2003, it's oh, a movie uh, called. Zero Dark. No, that was Hurt Locker. No, that she's she's 2009. So that is that, that's, that's also Hurt one. Locker. Yeah, what's 2003? was Lost in Translation. Oh, yeah, Coppola. Okay. Good. Yep. And then 2017, Lady Bird. Uh, that's right. Uh, Greta Gerwig. Yep. And then 2020, uh, Promising Young Woman. Oh, yeah. and Emerald then Fennel. That's right. And Nomadland. And then Chloe Zhao won for, uh, for Nomadland. Very good. Emerald Fennel. That's right. She won the Academy Award for the script. I forgot she'd been nominated for directing as well. All right. Excellent. Excellent. Good work there by Chris Cody. Check it out. Equal time here for all sides. Um, <laughs> by the way, in case you want some little bit of reviews here, Power of the Dog, uh, James Barrardinelli of Real Views. Overall, the Power of the Dog probably isn't as powerful or wrenching as Campion intended for it to be, but it remains an unsettling piece of cinema. Kathleen Sachs, The Power of the Dog, Campion's newest film in 12 years, is among the year's best. And Rafer Guzman, broken into chapters, it starts as a nicely observed period piece, darkens into a psychological drama, then becomes an exercise in dream. Red. All right, last film, Becoming the Ricardos. Thank you so much to the crew for sending me this movie because there's a, um, a junket taking place, a virtual press conference, so I wanted to be a part of it. They said, well, you got to see the movie first. I'm like, no problem. So they sent me the link. It's great. It's opening in theaters this Friday, and I believe it's coming out in a couple weeks on Amazon Prime. That film is called Becoming the Ricardos, new film from Aaron Sorkin, the very prolific and talented writer-director. It stars actors like Nicole Kidman, Javier Bardem as Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. You also get J.K. Simmons in the movie, and uh, he's always fun to see in a movie like this. But I really enjoyed it. Becoming the Ricardos. And these kinds of stories, Chris, I'm always a sucker for. I like stories about showbiz types. You know, obviously the Larry Sanders shows are my favorite shows of all time. So I enjoy watching a sitcom. What's really interesting is the way they start the movie. They have like so-called people from the cast or from the crew of I Love Lucy. It's not actually them, I don't believe. I think it's just people talking about it, but saying, think of how popular I Love Lucy was. 60 million people used to watch this show every week. The Super Bowl gets like 95. That's wild. Right? That's wild. This is every week. Game of Thrones is probably the most popular show for you and me the last 10 years. And I think Game of Thrones used to get 14, 15 million, maybe 10 million. This is 60 every week. It's insane. So what Aaron Sorkin does is rather clever as a dramatist. Rather than try to tell the story of Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, he goes, okay, I'm going to take one week. I'm going to show a, a, what is a week in their life. And he crams a bunch of events which didn't happen. Hopefully it's a stressful week. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I feel like if it's just like one of like their great weeks, I feel like this isn't a real good sample for what really pretty, happened. Pretty, I feel like, you know. Pretty bland. <laughs> week we start with the read-through went to rehearsal picked out a couple costumes knocked out some lines desi was out of town he was like not even there he was just just lucy yeah. he packed <laughs> in events that actually didn't happen on that week and made it in that week so like some <laughs> stuff happened like desi was on the cover of a magazine with some other girl it happened like right. two years later but sorkin just puts into that week which is fine dramatic license yeah. um but the real star of course is is the actors and i thought they did a really really good job nicole kidman it, it's odd she doesn't really look like lucille ball and even in the film when you're watching it it's like she looks like a version of lucille Lucille Ball. Like, they both have red hair. Okay, it's kind Did of they do that red... Uh, as a redhead, it happens my entire life. People think all redhead, pe redheaded people look the same. Like, I get all the time, hey, you look just like my friend. It's like, no, you just have a friend with red hair. Yeah, you look like John Shambi. I'm like, no, I don't, I don't yeah, look like Boog. I, I, I've gotten that. That's a great example. I've gotten that before. Hey, you look like Boog. It's like, no, we both just have red hair. You asshole. So I think initially in the casting, they may have said, okay, well, Nicole Kim, you've got red hair. You can do it. You're Australian. You've yeah. won an Academy Award before for the hours. I could see her, though. She's kind of like, she's thin. Like, I could yes, see her thin. turning into Lucille. I, I wish that, because I, th I thought she did a very good job with it, but she didn't physically look like her necessarily. Like, her face is these odd prosthetics, her nose specifically. But she's playing Lucille Ball very serious. So what I liked with the film is this. They're showing them without their personas. And the way that Lucille Ball comes across is a very serious, committed actress who wasn't particularly a barrel of laughs. It was a rough week. Yeah, when they're, when they're at those read-throughs, she's not like cracking fart jokes. She's not like telling one-liners. Right. She's very serious. Let's see a ball. Let's get through the script and boom, boom, boom. But then right. you see her on screen. She's amazing. So I wish the show had, sh I wish the movie had shown more scenes from the show. 
Like the two most famous things from I Love Lucy is a scene where she's eating chocolates in the conveyor belt and where she's stomping grapes. So they, they do show the stomping grapes, but it's very, very quick. And I was like, I mm-hmm. wish they would have shown like a 10-minute scene. Instead, virtually the entire film is about I Love Lucy without showing I Love Lucy. So that's my primary criticism of the film. But as Aaron Sorkin does, he's very verbally nimble when it comes to the script. He's a very adept director now. It's the third film he's now directed, obviously coming off of The Trial of the Chicago 7, which was very universally lauded by the Academy. So I, I think it will do well as far as the Oscars are concerned. I think people who are in show business will like it. Showbiz people like stories about show business. That's why, you know, La La Land did so well as a musical. But I, I would have liked to have seen more of I Love Lucy. I'll give it three Maple Leafs because I did enjoy the cast. They did an excellent job. But I'd like to, I watched the film and I was like, I'd like to go watch a documentary now about Lucia Ball and try to learn more about her as well. How was J.K. Simmons as Fred Mertz? So apparently Fred was, was not a great guy. Like, not a jerk, but just didn't suffer fools gladly. So J.K. Simmons has about maybe 50 to 20 minutes in the movie, but, like, the Fred just comes across as a guy who's not to be trifled with. Like, just let, let, <laughs> let's, let's get down to business. Let's have a couple of drinks, and let's get after it. But I just, J.K. Simmons, great actor. He's probably yeah. a Levitard fan. Like, he's a legit sports guy. Big Ohio State mm-hmm. fan. Loves the Tigers. Uh, so, yeah, J.K. Simmons, it's good to see him in the film. You also have a bit of an Arrested Development reunion there, too, because Aaliyah Shawkat from Arrested Development is in it, and Tony Hale, of course, won an Academy Award, excuse me, won an Emmy Award uh, for his work on Veep. So it was nice to see the Arrested Development connection as well. But uh, a couple of blurbs, Hope Madden of Mad Wolf. Their on-screen personas meet their off-screen realities in a way that allows a firmly remarkable cast to deliver twice the goods. And Ann Thompson of IndieWire, being the Ricardos is a fascinating look at one fraught week for Lucy. Seal Ball and Desi Arnaz under duress on many fronts with I Love Lucy and their marriage at stake. Kidman and Bardem deliver Oscar-worthy performances, but flashbacks with de-aging CGI are creepy. The CGI issue always comes up a little bit. So it's so it's Nicole Kidman looking younger. Yes. Or is it? No, Nicole, okay. Yeah, I just Nicole, was trying to I was trying to figure out were they looking at Lucille Ball and making uh, her younger with CGI yeah, or it was Kidman okay. Make her like ten years younger flashback to when she first met Desi, and they go from there. By the way, a bit of a controversy here. Javier Bardem is Spanish, playing a Cuban actor. You know. This in Miami, mm. very sensitivity with the Cuban American population. So I, I did see a couple of, uh, you know, not protests per Le- se, but some criticism. The Levitard show has covered that a lot in terms of uh, the Godfather and stuff. A lot of like Cubans yes. playing Italians in the Godfather. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the day. Back in the day. Like, hey, you know what? Let's just get the best actor going. Which I, I was, it's an interesting debate. A part of me goes, well, if Javier Bardem is the right actor for the role, fine. But then I do get yeah. the fact that people are like, no, I got, why can't you get a Cuban guy? If there's plenty of Cuban actors out there. Yeah. Okay. So I, I just one of those that I actually see both sides. Uh, let's go through the old quickly and then we'll get to our interview. Uh, a great, great book. Thanks to my buddy Rick Passport who sent it along to me. A lot can happen in the middle of nowhere. It's all about the great film Fargo. If you missed the conversation that me and Ryan Rosilla had, uh, you'll enjoy that if you're a fan of Fargo. I don't want to say too much except for the fact I really appreciate the author's approach, which is this. He clearly did not interview, he did not interview the Coen brothers, who are, of course, responsible for the film. They're the writers, producers, directors. He takes some clips that they've had elsewhere. He didn't interview Frances McDormand, who's the star of the film, who won the Academy Award for Best Actress. <laughs> he did talk to William H. Macy, who was not a for Best Supporting Actor and became a real star for this movie. But what he really does well is this. He gets a lot of interviews with people who had bit parts. So he'll write like three pages on a guy who had two lines in the movie. And I thought it was a fascinating approach to make a, a book about this way. Because rather than talk to the stars, who I'm sure would have been better to talk to. Let's be clear. I was going to say, I mean, it seemed like a plan B maybe for him because he didn't get the stars. But I'm with you. Well, I'll give you an example. A character I love is Mr. Mora. He might be my favorite character in the movie. He's the guy, the old guy, who's being interviewed by the cop. And he's a bartender who ended up serving Steve Buscemi and Peter Stamari. And this guy's name is Bane Belke. He's actually a guy who runs the, the theater in, in Minneapolis. So he's like, you know, the stage director. He's the curator. He actually, you know, creates some of the sets and costumes. And he's also an actor as well. So when Fargo was casting in Minneapolis, St. Paul, everyone's like, oh, my God, Fargo, here we go, Coen Brothers, Native Guys. So they're casting a lot of local actors. And what happened was they were like, we really want the authentic accent. Like, we want it exaggerated even, you know what I mean? And they're like, well, you got to go talk to Bane. Bane's like from here. He's been here for 60 years. Like, he's awesome. So he didn't actually cast for the role, but other people recommended him, which is very, very rare in the business. He goes there, and the Coen brothers love him. Like, oh, this guy's great. Like, your voice is good. Your acting, your demeanor is like, okay, whatever. And he, he comes across, at least in the book, the way his character is. Like, he was very nonchalant. He goes, the directors really didn't talk to me. I didn't do a lot of takes. I kind of just did my thing. I'm like, oh, I'm going home. He thought it was like a student film. And like, he's like, I'm not <laughs> dumb. I know, who the far- I know who the Coen brothers are, but I'm like, the way this is coming across, like, this is going to be very good. He goes, later, they had a rap party. Didn't bother going. 
He goes there and like, you want to come to the screen? I'm like, no, nah, I'm good. He, he, ends up, what? he ends up going to see another, this guy's like 60 years old. He goes to see another movie like months later and goes, oh my God, he's a trailer for Fargo. Like, this looks like a professional film. This is crazy. And it ends up obviously winning Academy Awards and being nominated. And he was astounded. He goes, I never would have thought that at all. And he goes, I'm glad they liked what I did. But I mean, I didn't think it was going to be a very good movie at all. And he goes, <laughs> I was just talking like how I talk like. He goes, like, I, I grew up 10 miles from the Canadian border. And, you know, a guy's kind of funny looking. And, you know, it's just kind of in a general way. Like, that's, that's just how I talk. <laughs> so I'm like, this guy is awesome. Then he came across the movie. They, they do like 10 pages, Chris, on the hookers in the movie. There's two hookers who Buscemi and Peter Samari pick up. And this is a little dicey here on the Coen brothers. They said that initially, they're like, okay, you know, one scene Bashemi's gonna ride you, or you ride him, whatever, okay, fine. But later they go, okay, we wanna have a scene of you guys watching the Tonight Show, and you hear the music from Johnny Carson, and you're gonna be topless sitting there. And they both turn to each other and they're like, I, like, I don't feel comfortable about this. Like, normally you have a nudity clog yeah. and a rider. So they went to Joel Cohen the next to the director, like, hey, like, why, like, why are we topless? Like, you know. And he's like, well, you know, that's just how we wrote the scene. And she's like, but, but like, I would never do that. Like, if I sleep with a guy, I would put the, the, you know, the sheets over my breast and then I watch TV. Like, I, I'm never just sitting there like that. And like, I'm just not yeah. really comfortable with that. And he's like, okay, like, you know, we'll, we'll direct it on that kind of thing. And she's like, but I, I think they were kind of just trying to pull a fast one by us. Like, hey, you know what? Like, this is how I wrote it. Like, no, like, you can Like, okay, sure. We're not going to do it. Yeah, 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 you'll be fine. Said, okay, fine. We won't be naked. <laughs> but there's lots of stories like that. There's like, there's literally the, the guy who plays the kid, Scotty. He was so excited to get the role because he was 15 years old. And he goes, great, I get two weeks out of school. And he was like, that's all I cared about. And he gets to drop an F-bomb. So he was so excited. He's like, oh, my God, I got two weeks out of school. I get to drop an F-bomb. And I get to, <laughs> to meet William H. Macy. And he said he was great. Uh. He was genuinely funny. William H. Macy's stuff is really interesting. He said, like, when asked to describe his own performance, he goes, I thought it was pretty good. He goes, do you think you nailed it? And he goes, I don't know if I nailed it. Like, looking back, I could have changed a couple of things here and there. I could have worked harder. But he goes, I thought it was pretty good. He goes, the, the whole concept of the used car salesman. Like, he goes, you don't see characters like that. The guy's a total loser. And, like, I was able to kind of give him some humanity and show his perspective. He goes, because to me, I'm playing the guy. I can't judge the character. I think he's noble in a way. He's getting screwed by his father-in-law. So he's like, fine. I'm going to hire a couple of guys to kidnap my wife. Yeah. I'm going to get the money. Like, he goes, the way a criminal thinks is they're not judging themselves. They're going, well, this seems to make sense to me because I have no other options. And he goes, yeah. the best direction the Coen brothers gave him, he goes, if you're from a cold area, when you come in the house, make sure you stomp your boots to shake the snow off. And he said it was such a good little detail. And every single time they would do take after take, if you ever see the characters coming into a store, boom, 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 smashing the snow off their boots. He goes, it's something if you're from a cold climate, you would appreciate. The one murder yeah. scene took like a week to shoot. It was late at night. It was tough. They didn't make much money off of it initially. The budget was maybe six, seven million dollars. At this point, these guys had made a few movies. Like if you know movies, you would know who they are. Barton Fink, Miller's Cross. Hudsucker Proxy was a disappointment. But Fargo ended up making $46 million uh, worldwide. And Joel and Ethan were shocked. They go, we're from Minneapolis. We're going to make this fun little movie. We're kind of making yeah. fun of where we're from. We're kind of making fun of people. And the movie reception was hilarious. Like, they had the big screening in Fargo, North Dakota. And half the crowd was like, oh, my God, these guys are such assholes. Like, they're from here, and they're making fun of our accents and making us look like simpletons and losers and weirdos. And half the crowd was like, no, this is hilarious. Like, it's satire, and it's fun. It's, it's really actually smart. And so you had this kind of wave of like, oh, man, who do these guys think they are? Like, they're too cool for school. They went to yeah. New York, and they're casting judgment on us. But then, of course, the movie gets nominated for seven Academy Awards. It wins two. And the Fargo mayor's like, ah, we love Fargo. This is great. <laughs> hey, Joel and Ethan Cohen Day, like, you guys are the best. Come visit. Yeah, Come visit Fargo. Movie. And my friend Anish Shroff, who's been there a couple times, because as you know, Fargo, a real powerhouse in college football. They, I mean, they're always in the FCS National Championship. He sent me a picture once with <laughs> like the famous wood chipper scene. He's like got the hat on. He's in his hands there. That is amazing. I know the actors <laughs> in the show, he goes, when, when the movie was over, they try to sell parts of, of the set. So the wood chipper, he's like, I want that. And they're like, we're charging 600 bucks that. He's like, I'm not going to give you 600 bucks. I'll give you 200 bucks for the wood chipper. <laughs> he ends up getting it, and he's like, I can't tell you how many times I'm on a set somewhere, and it's just a conversation starter. Oh, I was in Fargo. Oh, yeah, where were you? Oh, I had this small little part. I had the wood chipper, though. You have the wood chipper? <laughs> really? Like Francis yeah. Norman runs after Peter Stamara, and you have the, I have the wood chipper in my house right now. Like, I'll show you a picture. He goes, for that alone, it's great to have it. You paid 200 bucks for the wood chipper. I'm like, what a steal. That's worth at least, I don't know, five grand, 10 grand. So I was going to say, 600, probably not that terrible of a deal, actually. No, he got it for two, yeah, though. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he probably should just pay the 600, but I'm like, oh, I got it for two, so it worked out. So there's lots of really, really cool stories like that about just the small details. Big thing, too, is it wasn't cold. You, imagine trying to shoot a movie in a place where it's known for being snowy and cold, and it was like a balmy time. It was like record-setting how warm it was in Minneapolis at that time. So they ended up having to go to North Dakota at one point. And, of course, the one aspect of it is this. The movie is called Fargo. 
It's rarely in Fargo. It actually takes place in Brainerd, Minnesota. You know, at one point, they're going to the Twin Cities, and when asked about the Coen brothers, said, well, we just don't think the title is very good, Brainerd, like Fargo. Fargo sounds like a cool name. So, ironically, yeah. a movie called Fargo isn't actually really set in Fargo. <laughs> but check out the book. A lot can happen in the middle of the nowhere. Todd Melby is the author. That's your new, that's your old. And now we get to our wild card. A couple of directors here with a new film called Citizen Ash. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Always love a great documentary here on Cinephile, and it's a pleasure to bring in Sam Pollard and Rex Miller. Citizen Ash is absolutely fabulous. A story all about not only a great tennis player, but also an activist and a pioneer. His name is Arthur Ashe. It's currently playing in New York City. It'll be playing this Friday in Los Angeles. It'll later be broadcast on CNN and HBO Max. Sam and Rex, can't thank you enough for the time. Rex, I'll start with you. Arthur Ashe is a guy I know a little bit about as a tennis fan. I know he's the first black man to really be a major, major presence in terms of winning Wimbledon, the U.S. Open, Australian Open, and the activism. I'm aware of Days of Grace. I know the fact he died from AIDS. But watching this, I really had a real understanding and appreciation for what a great person he was and just how influential he was. Was that the goal of this documentary, to give Arthur Ashe his due? Adnan, thanks for having us. I would say absolutely yes. A deeper dive into Arthur's activism, as well as his tennis success, to bring his story to a younger generation. Sam, I want to focus on the tennis first, because just as a, as a tennis fan, it's always amazing seeing how tennis was so different back then. And Arthur was just so calm out there and just so smooth. I mean, you get this essence, especially as a counterpoint to John McEnroe, who he's later working with the Davis Cup, and Max got some great quotes there, but Arthur. But what did you think of just his demeanor and his tennis skill, which was prodigious? Simply this, Ad man, sublime, stylish, graceful. Those are the words I would use to describe Arthur Ashe on the tennis court. And then off the tennis court, I would say dignified, quiet, and assured, and a very confident man. Yeah, Sam, it's always fun looking at the different personalities. You know, there was that great HBO documentary, Fire and Ice, looking at John Mackerel and Bjorn Borg. And you look at the personalities of Arthur Ashe and Jimmy Connors, and those guys were not on the same page. Connors, particularly... Uh, listen, everyone always thinks of 91, the, the run of the quarterfinals, but he comes across kind of antagonistic here. Well, you know, he was a, he was a real hothead, intense, <laughs> intense young man, Jimmy Connors was, you know, and uh, he fired up the tennis world. I mean, he was basically, you know, it was interesting, you know, Adman in the film, when, you, when we first introduced to Jimmy Connors and to Arthur Ashe, you know, you hear the, the, the commentators say, you know, Arthur Ashe, the traditional tennis player going against the young upstart. It's, a little, it's sort of ironic to see this black man who's considered a traditional tennis player against <laughs> the white man who's the young upstart. But it's, it shows you how Arthur was able as a tennis player and as an African-American to figure out how to integrate himself into the white world of tennis. And he did it extremely well. Yeah, and it's perfect timing now, Rex. I'm sure you guys are busy, maybe haven't had a chance to watch King Richard yet, the new Will Smith film in theaters and HBO Max. Oh, I have. But you look at Venus's. We've yeah, both seen it. Yeah. 
Uh, it's perfect timing with your documentary. I feel like this is a great double dip here. I can go watch King Richard, see the story of great black female tennis players who just bolted down what everyone was, all the obstacles in their way. And you look at Arthur Ashe and he paved the way before them. But it's it's interesting counterpoints. You look at Arthur Ashe's family, you know, he wasn't growing up in Compton, but again, there was no heroes like this. And, and I love the stuff with his brother talking about the war and stuff. I mean, Arthur's um, origins I find are really fascinating in the way that they kind of built him and shaped him in his life. Oh, absolutely. His origins shaped him. And as we see in the film, he was greatly impacted by the murder of Emmett Till, who was his same age, like 13, 14 years old. And as Arthur says, if you were black, even if you were illiterate at that time, you knew who Emmett Till was. So that greatly shaped his approach to a lot of things, which was to stay calm, don't get noticed, don't raise a fuss. And we can see that later when he's talking about how he would love to be able to throw tantrums like John McEnroe, but my race wouldn't let me and the tennis world would have drove me out. So he was greatly impacted by growing up in, the, in Richmond, the capital of the Confederacy. Yeah, that's where always that subtle racism comes in, Sam. Hey, we don't mind black athletes, but don't be a rabble rouser, okay? Don't be loud. Don't be cantankerous. Don't have an afro like Kaepernick. Just, just do you like Arthur Ashe, right? Nice guy docile, genteel, that's what we're looking for. And that's the great double standard, of course, the hypocrisy well, when it comes to the way black athletes are viewed. Well, you, you got to think back. Let's rewind now back to 1947 when Branch Rickey signed Jackie Robinson to a contract to play with the Brooklyn Dodgers. What did he say to Jackie Robinson? He says, for you to be able to make it in the major leagues, you can't show any anger. You got to sort of swallow all the insults you're going to hear. And from stadium to stadium, you got to be able to do all of that for you to get accepted. And, and we all know Jackie Robinson was a much more intense man than he had to be that first season with the Brooklyn Dodgers. But when he, you know, when he basically made the reputation being a really good ball player, he was able to, by the 50s, to be a little more vocal. But that was the strategy. And that was a strategy that has permeated African-Americans in the sports world for many years. And it was, we all know this, right? When Ali came along, he blew that open. I remember in 1964 watching the fight between, I think it was 64, between Ali and Floyd Patterson. And back then, I thought Floyd Patterson was doing it the right way. He was keeping it, keeping it close to the vest, not talking out and using his fist. But what happened to him in the ring? Ali beat him up. <laughs> he beat him up, man. <laughs> And Ali showed you that you could be a black man and speak out. And that was revolutionary. But we have to remember that when Arthur, after 68, won the U.S. Open, he became revolutionary in his own way. Yeah, and I think that's that's a good point there, Rex. You can piggyback off of that, that Arthur Ashe was being influential, but he wasn't doing it in the loudest form, the most flamboyant manner. But I think once he achieved a measure of success... People were listening to what he had to say, and he was very smart. He was very calculated in what his messaging yeah, was. Arthur was always about being intellectual, being pragmatic, being, bringing different people to the table. And he didn't speak out much until he felt he had that platform of being a world champion, winning the U.S. Open in 1968. And as Andrew Young says, Arthur knew he, it was his time to speak, but he was going to let his racket do the talking first. And then after he won the U.S. Open, days later, he's on Meet the Press and he tells his brother, people are going to want to hear what I have to say and I intend to be heard. So he also, like I said, was always about bringing different people to the conversation. And that's why he's so pertinent and relevant now when this country is so, you know, everybody in their own silo, that Arthur would be a voice of communication, bringing people together. And as Arthur says, everybody needs to speak out. You can't just sit and watch the world go by. That's what drove him seeing all these other people speaking out and the events of the world uh, unfurling around him. But he was going to do it his way in his time. And uh, Arthur's his great slogans was start where you are, use what you have, do what you can, imploring everybody to take a, take a stand and get involved in your own way. It's a great model to have for one's life. Sam, you guys focus on Arthur's journey. My only quibble is I wish it was longer. I think it's like an hour and a half. I was like, I could have taken five hours on, on Citizen Ash. So I'll, I'll take a sequel whenever you guys are going to dial it up. But I think, those Rick, obviously, I, I think Rex would agree with that. <laughs> yeah. But whenever, um, uh, for those who have not seen the documentary, obviously, what can you tell us about Arthur Ashe as a person? We're focusing on his activism uh, and his tennis. But how about as a man, as a husband, as a father, as a son? What can you tell people about Arthur Ashe? Well, listen, you can see that he had a very loving and warm relationship with both his wife, Jean, and his daughter, Cameron. You can see that he was a 
He was a, a man who loved and understood who his father was all about. And they had a very, very close relationship with his brother, Johnny. This was yeah. a man who was, a, you know, he was, he was sensitive. And I think one of the things we need to also discuss, you know, Adman, is the fact that Rex was able to find all these audio tapes from the professor, Arnold, Arnold Rampersad, who wrote the book with Arthur, Days of Grace, that really gives you an inside look at Arthur from a very introspective, sensitive, you know, point of view about how he felt about things, which is one, which is when you find that kind of material for a documentary, it's like striking gold. Yeah, Rex, that's always a challenge sometimes when you make a documentary. Like, I mean, I guess this era, there's enough of Arthur Ashe. Obviously, it's in the age of television, you go to old video and such. But I'm sure with certain figures, like I've talked to Ken Burns before, when he's doing a Jack Johnson documentary, it's still photographs. You, know, you can't find people who are alive from that era. So what challenges did you encounter in trying to tell Arthur Ashe's yeah, story? Yeah, I mean, that was one of the big ones, was finding something unique that maybe people hadn't seen before. And yeah, he, Arthur had done a bunch of TV interviews and some radio interviews. And then going through all 47 boxes in the Arthur Ashe archive at the Schomburg Center in Harlem, um, I found this very lengthy transcription of must have been about a thousand pages, which turned out to be interviews that Arnold Rampersad did for Days of Grace with Arthur. And we reached out to uh, Mr. Rampersad and said, hey, do you have those tapes perhaps? And he said, I have no idea but I'll go look in my attic. And a few days later, he called us and he said, hey, I just found a shoebox with 33 micro cassettes. Do you want to hear them? And um, yeah, as Sam says, it was gold because yeah, the, the stuff that we had of Arthur was, there was a lot of interesting stuff and it, it, it got across a lot of information and context, but to really hear from the man himself with his internal voice. And there were times where he was speaking into a dictaphone on his own, like when he's having a heart attack and he's in the hospital. So much more introspective than just like an ESPN interview. And we wound up having 33 hours of that stuff. And that was a really good problem to have, this excessive amount. Yeah, the treasure trove of material is certainly put to good use in Citizen Ash. And Sam, I think it's important also that Arthur ended up being HIV positive and passing away because at that time, there was still a lot of ignorance about AIDS and being HIV positive. What's the difference with that and full-blown AIDS and, and is it a gay disease, et cetera? The fact that Arthur contracted the virus through a blood transfusion, to me, I was 13 years old at the time. Like That was the first major name that I heard of contacting HIV through blood transfusion. And it really, I think, shone a light on the fact that Anybody who's contracting this disease should be shared with compassion and shouldn't be denigrated and cast aside the way that people were in terms of those who were getting AIDS in the 80s prior to Arthur Ashe. Yeah, here's, but here's the thing to remember, though, Adman. He was reluctant to sort of reveal that, but when he did, he stepped up like Arthur Ashe would. He stepped up, he became an activist in dealing with AIDS issues. So you got I mean, this guy was one of these guys who always stepped up, you know, be it on the tennis court or off the tennis court. So when he says at the end of the film, he says, well, how did someone ask him, how does he want to be remembered? He'd say he didn't want to just be remembered as a tennis player. He wanted to be remembered as a human being who did things. I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he meant. I think, you know, he's, he's special. And, I, you know, I was, I was 18 years old in 68 when Arthur won the U.S. Open. And I knew about him. I knew who he was on the tennis court, but I didn't know about his life off the tennis court that we've delved into in this film, which to me proves one thing, that African-American people aren't monolithic, that in the turbulent 60s, everybody wasn't gonna be like Kareem or Muhammad Ali or Jim Brown. There were gonna be people, African-American people who were gonna be activists and involved like Arthur Ashe. Swell said, Sam, closing thought from you, Rex, on Making Citizen Act. Yeah, we didn't mention uh, Arthur's great connection and love for Nelson Mandela, which spanned for over about 30 years from when he first heard about him and then followed him through his 27 years in prison. And then finally got, even though Arthur went to South Africa in 73 and then 77, he finally met Mandela in the early 90s. And that was a big moment for him. And they embraced and his wife, Jeannie, was there and snapped these beautiful pictures and uh, as Arthur said, he had such amazing respect for Mandela's grace coming out of prison with no bitterness 
only wanting to know what he could do next to help his country. And I think that shines a light on Arthur's activism as well. Rex Miller and Sam Pollard, my many thanks to them. Citizen Ash, currently playing in New York City. It'll be playing in Los Angeles at the Royal as of this Friday, and later will be broadcast on CNN and HBO Max. I just hope it gets lots of love from everybody out there, from the critics, and lots of adulation, because it really is a great testament to an excellent athlete and an even better person. Rex, Sam, thanks, thanks so much, guys. Thank you, man. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks once again to Rex Miller and Sam Paul. Both those guys are terrific. Make sure you check out Citizen Ash. Lots of great movies on the way. I mean, this is the time. If you love movies, this is the time. This weekend, you got Steven Spielberg's new film, West Side Stories, opening up. We've also got Don't Look Up, Adam McKay's new movie. Have you seen the cast for this movie, Cody? This is ridiculous how many stars are in this film. It's going to be on Netflix this Friday. I actually had a chance to go to that premiere down in, there was like some kind of premiere in Miami. And since Adam McKay is like a friend of the show and stuff, we were all invited and I just couldn't make it. Oh. But my, my dad saw it and, and my dad said it was really good. He liked it? Okay, so, good. Yeah, he did. Well, this cast, Leonardo DiCaprio, Jennifer Lawrence, Jonah Hill, Mark Wylance, Tyler Perry, Timothy Chalamet, Ariana Grande, Kate Blanchett, Meryl Streep. And plenty more. Michael Chiklis, Gina Kershaw, Matthew Perry. What is the best time for a movie? You just said this is the time. I thought summers was the time for movies. Like, if you had to pick a week, like, what is the week? Or is there a couple times a year that it's the well, week? Look, Independence Day weekend is, like, if you're looking to make a movie with a lot of money, right? If it's Pearl Harbor, Fast and Furious, Independence Day weekend's huge. Even Memorial Day weekend is massive. But I feel like if you're trying to win an Oscar, this is the time for movies. So, post-Thanksgiving. Why is that? What's what's the Oscar thing? Well, like, the, why the, now for Oscars? The all come in at this time, so you start voting Okay. Balloting ends always like early January. What have you seen lately kind of thing? Exactly. It's like recency bias. hundred yeah. percent. So they cram all those movies in. Hey, January 3rd, both Oh, I just saw West Side Story. Oh, I just saw Don't Look Up. Oh, I just saw yeah. Yeah, whatever the film was. So that's why. But yeah, this is, okay. if you like those kind of prestige films, this is the time. So thank you so much for checking out Cinephile. Uh, all those movies and more coming up. Hopefully some great guests on the way. And we'll see you at the movies. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.